Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. My guest today is Huda Shakri. Huda Shakri is a scholar of 20th and 21st century cultural production from North Africa and the Middle East, with an emphasis on the relationship between aesthetics and ethics. Specializing in Arabic and Francophone literature, visual culture, and criticism, her interdisciplinary research explores aesthetic theory, Islamic philosophy, comparative literary criticism, as well as gender and sexuality. Huda Shakri's book, which is the subject of our interview today, Literary Quran, Narrative Ethics in the Maghreb, Fordham University Press 2019, was awarded the ACLA's 2018 Helen Tarter Book Subvention Award and the MLA's 2020 Aldo Angian Scaglione Prize for Comparative Literary Studies. It examines the influence of Quranic textual, hermeneutical, and philosophical traditions on 21st century novels from the Maghreb, Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco, placing canonical Francophone writers into conversation with lesser-known Arabophone ones, literary Qur'an stages a series of pairings that invite paratactic readings across texts, languages, and literary canons, challenging the canonization of secular modes of reading that occlude religious epistemies, practices, and intertexts. The study extracts a model of ethical narratology from the Qur'an. Her current book project is a critical history of 20th century cultural journals and periodicals from the Maghrib. She is also working on a study of speculative and science fiction from the Middle East and North Africa. Hoda Shekri received her PhD from UCLA. Before joining the University of Chicago, she was an assistant professor of comparative literature at Penn State University and a faculty fellow at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at New York University. Okay, so welcome to the podcast. And normally we start out with a bit of a biographical question. Uh, We ask, what drew you to academia? Uh, What do you work on and what drives you? Great. Uh, Thank you for that question. So, um, I mean, I grew up a pretty voracious and avid reader of fiction from childhood onwards. And so becoming a literary scholar kind of felt like a natural fit. Um, But my path to academia was actually kind of circuitous. So I studied philosophy and comparative literature as an undergrad at Rutgers University. And my training kind of reflected where the discipline was at the time in the mid-90s, which is to say still largely rooted in European languages and literatures. I worked in German and French, but because I studied post-colonial criticism, I ended up writing my undergraduate thesis on Francophone Maghrebi fiction. After I graduated, I wanted to delay graduate school a little bit and spent about six years pursuing kind of other professional and personal interests. Uh, I spent most of this time working in public affairs in New York City, uh, doing counseling to NGOs, nonprofits, and universities. Um, At the same time, I continued to take Uh, continuing education courses in a wide range of subjects on the side, but it became clear to me at a certain point that 
I really miss the rigors and kind of intellectual fulfillment of academia. And so I ended up applying to graduate programs and eventually joining the PhD, uh, the PhD program in comparative literature at UCLA. Um, because I grew up bilingually between New York and Cairo, and I studied in really diverse kind of educational contexts from American public schools to a British colonial school in Egypt. I had tutors in Arabic and the Quran while I was in Cairo. Complete felt like a compelling critical lens for kind of approaching and understanding my own personal and intellectual formation. Uh, it provided me with a kind of conceptual language for reflecting on difference and comparison across languages, cultures, geographies, um, and even modes of reading. I first uh, picked up Maghrebi literature when I read Drish Rebi's Le Passé Simple at this point almost 25 years ago. And the novel was kind of unlike anything I'd read before. It sort of brought to the forefront um, these existential and ethical and political questions about cultural contact and difference that just really resonated with me and that in some ways I've kind of been unpacking since. When I was in graduate school, I expanded my work on the Maghreb to include Arabic literature and also put my interest in philosophy and Islam into conversation with this archive. I'd say my main intellectual interests lie at the intersection of aesthetics and ethics across literary production, print culture, criticism, art and film across the Middle East and North Africa. So this has taken my work from exploring Quranic intertextuality and Sufi poetics in Maghrebi fiction to looking at the kind of translational migration of Russian theorist Mikhail Bakhtin's theory of narratology in Morocco, to even reading experimental Palestinian art and film alongside Afrofuturism. And I would add that teaching is really crucial to how I develop and continue to kind of fine tune my comparative methodology, not to mention it's an indispensable political dimension of my work as a scholar. In the classroom, I'm really able to stage these sites of comparative reading that are often more capacious than my own publications and writing, but that nonetheless inform how I approach a lot of these archives. Can you expand on that last point about teaching? Because I, I would be interested to hear more about sort of how you build syllabi and what, what texts you bring together. Yeah, I'll pull a recent example um, for a course that I was actually able to teach just before we went online during the pandemic. I taught a course on global speculative fiction, uh, I guess it would be last winter, that was really trying to think about how science and speculative fiction can be looked at beyond the sort of normative lenses with which it's approached, I think, in the U.S., where it tends to be sort of largely rooted in these European and American archives. And so in that context, um, you know, something like Afrofuturism, uh, the recent trends in black horror, for example, mm -hmm. became really critical intertexts for thinking about how racial ideologies are actually at the core of a lot of early science fiction writing and theories. And then because I'm interested in questions of narratology, for example, um, I think a lot of the interesting scholarship that's been done on that, especially by Darko Suvin, who talks about kind of cognitive estrangement as the main way of approaching uh, science and speculative fiction, 
a lot of that is coming out of a sort of um, Soviet and post-Soviet context. And so um, in that regard, you know, I'm pulling in uh, Evgeny Zemiantin's We, uh, which is a really under kind of taught and theorized text, but one that was essential for George Orwell and Aldous Huxley and was immensely influential for U.S. science fiction. My Russian lit professor in college told me that that was the best of the three of Orwell, Algis Huxley's, Amyatin's We was the best. That I would of- definitely agree. <laughs> um, so back to your work. Um, today we're discussing the literary quote on narrative ethics in the Maghreb, um, which you recently published. And I wanted to sort of dive into the book first by looking at the questions of how did you define the book geographically and temporally? Sort of what were the parameters for it? And how and why were these parameters, if they exist, of course, because you don't always need to set your boundaries, depending on what you're working on, um, whether or not these things were important for your scope, basically. Great. Thank you. Um, So because of the moment, as I was signaling when I was talking about kind of my early undergraduate career, because of the moment in which I came into an intellectual formation within Complit, which was a time when post-colonial and subaltern studies were really beginning to peak, it means that I approached, initially at least, I approached the Maghreb through that lens. Mm -hmm. As the project matured, I was increasingly finding myself grappling with the kind of ethical and political limitations of this framework. And just for, by way of a little context, the field of Maghrebi studies really rose to prominence in the U.S. academy around the mid-1990s to early 2000s. And this had a lot to do with Francophone studies uh, as an expansion of French and Francophone studies departments and their associated academic imprints. So they were publishing books from uh, the Maghreb and translating them into English. And then since then, critical studies of the Maghreb have still managed to remain largely under the auspices of French and Francophone studies departments and a lot of scholars have paid fairly limited attention to the region's Arabophone and Berberophone traditions. So this is something that is starting to change, but at least when I first started working on this project, was was kind of new. So when I was writing this book, I was really invested in approaching this archive in a way that kind of challenged some of the assumptions undergirding the history and the formation of this field. So the study pairs canonical Francophone novels with lesser known Arabic novels Mm -hmm. from roughly the 1940s to the 1980s. And the structure reflects in some ways the methodology and argument that I'm trying to put forward because it compels us to read Maghrebi fiction comparatively Mm -hmm. and as a site that is inherently multilingual and polyphonic. And so that's part of why I chose highly celebrated Francophone authors and texts by Didish Shrebi in Morocco, Essia Jabbar in Algeria, and Abdel Wahab Madab in Tunisia, because I wanted to show how the different formal and thematic questions that emerge when we read them alongside interlocutors in Arabic. In this case, Mohamed Barada in Morocco, Tahar Wattar in Algeria, and Mahmoud al-Masadi in Tunisia. And so that's why it was also important for me to kind of address that specific period, the kind of late colonial, early post-independence period, when Francophone cultural production was most privileged. And 
The projects focus on the Quran as a literary intertext and kind of linguistic and literary exemplar is also disrupting the ways that the secular religious binary gets mapped onto Francophone and Arabic literatures respectively, right? So Francophone literature is inherently treated as secular. Arabic literature is inherently treated as religious in the context of the Maghreb from this time. And the influence of the Quran, I found, often got whitewashed in Francophone Maghrebi literature in the service of, we could say, maybe more palatable or legible modes of reading or critical analysis. So this is why figures like Dries Shrebi, Abdullahab Madhab, and Esya Jabbar tend to get secularized or simply dismissed as heretical, right? It's easier to think of Jabbar as an assimilated secular feminist than to wrestle with the complex ways that she addresses questions of gender, sexuality, indigeneity, and Muslim ethics, and does so in, right, francophone texts. So just by way of example, one of her later novels, which is called Luan de Medine, or Far from Medina, uh, she, in the prologue to the text, she frames her literary project as an act of ishtahed, which she defines as intellectual effort in the search of truth, coming from jihad's internal struggle recommended for all believers. And so she really foregrounds what her intellectual and ethical project is here. And then in terms of the Arabic writers that I chose to work on, one of the things I was particularly drawn to was that many of the writers like Mahmoud al-Masadi and Mohammed Barada from Tunisia and Morocco, respectively, not only wrote um, copious amounts of fiction, but were also prolific writers of literary criticism and philosophy. And so I, I kind of appreciated that I was able um, to incorporate their critical writings into my analytical apparatus. And it just gave me another dimension for approaching kind of their entire corpus. So um, I've mentioned this to you before, but one thing the book does extremely well is set up sort of I mean, the Quran is viewed in very different lenses. It's a methodological tool. It's a subject of inquiry in itself. Um, and to quote you, you say that in the introduction to the book that the Quran is a set, um, you refer to the Quran as a set of aesthetic and ethical practices, um, which includes the Quran's formal qualities and its hermeneutical practices, and, it, and its hermeneutics and embodies practices. Um, and I wanted to understand sort of... Um, what the corrective move is here? How are you countering what exists in the field in addition to what you uh, just defined as sort of the religious and the secular binary that's mapped onto Francophone and Arabophone literatures um, in the Maghrib, but also um, with regard to how Sufism and the Quran are approached in studies of these literatures previously? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there. So, I mean, historically, of course, Islam was kind of a, a major fixation of French occupiers and their civilizing mission. Um, and they, you know, as a number of scholars in the anthropology of Islam and in history have written, they tried to sort of divorce religious praxis from cultural, social, political, and juridical life. Um, and in France, this this was particularly the case, for example, in terms of the secularization of Muslim law. And so Orientalist scholarship from this time subsequently treated Islam and the Quran as these sort of artifacts of an atavistic past that that undermined, you know, these secular underpinnings of a modernization thesis. 
And I feel like a lot of this kind of tends to get reflected in contemporary academic practices, right? Um, where Barbie fiction is is either read explicitly, autobiographically, um, or as a kind of response to French imperialism, which results in chronic intertextuality being sort of elided or orientalized. Um, in the case of Sufism, I mean, that's a particularly interesting one, I think, in the context of the Maghreb, and that was why I wanted to feature it fairly prominently in this study, uh, because, you know, during the colonial period, that was, and actually um, even earlier, I think you could say, um, in, in, in the kind of uh, earlier periods of Orientalist scholarship, let's say in the in the 19th century, there was this tendency to sort of um, treat Sufism two things. One, as an apolitical mm-hmm. practice, right? So it was often divorced from any forms of political engagement or agency, right? Um, despite the fact that Sufi orders played a fascinating role um, in colonial resistance, and there's been a lot of scholarship done on this uh, in the context of the Maghreb. Um, And then the second thing would be they treated it as a distinct form of Islam, right? So instead of reading Islam as this kind of continuum of different practices, beliefs, habits, um, ways of reading, modes of comportment, of which Sufism and the many permutations of Sufism would be one facet of that, they instead treated Sufis as these kind of peaceful Muslims, right? And we see this playing out in contemporary scholarship and political debates about Islam in which we have this kind of false binary where you have, you know, peaceful Islam with which Sufism is often aligned. And then you have this kind of straw man of Sunni orthodoxy that gets tied to, you know, things like religious violence and extremism. I feel like there may have been another component of your question, but I've since forgotten it. I think that covers it well. Um, I think I did want to know particularly also uh because you mentioned in the book itself um this this element of uh theorizing from below mm-hmm. um i wanted to know whose work did you find particularly inspiring in this regard what sort of what, who who did you lean on as you um sort of forged this new path with regards to the quran and presenting it in this way as as an element of of narrative ethics for example Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, one way of approaching this question is to say, what does it mean to think of religious scripture as a site to do the work of theory, mm-hmm. right? So in the process of even just asking or posing that question, we're unpacking or maybe taking apart a little bit what it means to do the work of theory. Um, and perhaps this is just because uh his book just came out and I recently had attended an event. I think an interesting scholar to think about in this regard is Fezi Verduil mm-hmm. at Duke, whose study on, um, on revolution and disenchantment recently was published. Uh, and, and that really does a kind of an ethnography or an anthropology of theory. Right. Um, and, 
with these kinds of projects, the theorizing below or thinking of the Quran as a kind of potential theoretical apparatus or literary intertext, I think what I'm trying to do here is to move us away from the assumptions that undergird a lot of Euro-American academic practices and habits, which is this idea that right, the, Europe and the Americas are the site of the universal mm-hmm. and everything that is part of the global South is particular cases to which we apply this universal theory that exists in a fixed location. And so when you unsettle that, I think what it really allows you to do is look at texts and the ways in which they invite us to read them from within the text itself, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so the question of intertextuality, right, the citational practices of including the Quran within the fictional form of, say, a francophone novel, one can either choose to ignore that or you can sort of double down and say, what is this intertextuality doing? How does it give us a different way of approaching literary analysis, literary criticism, and, and literary reading? It reminds me of something else you said in the book, which is sort of that um, the Quran gives us this ethical way to evaluate literature. And it refers... I think of that particular line in your introduction as a reference back to what you've just said about intertextuality, right? Is that you're meeting the text at its own references and not your, and not, you know, that of the critic perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, you've also mentioned in the book itself sort of how you use adab. And I also find that useful because it again, redefines the canon that you're, referring back to as you're doing these close readings of the text themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's actually, to lay out sort of the groundwork um, for the, the listener, what are the conversations that these literary works are, ha- what are the conversations that these literary works are having with their own context? So sort of how are, and this is something you do beautifully in the book. I think you lay out sort of where each individual text and its author is and who they were inspired. I mean, you contextualize just to sort of put it blankly and provide mm-hmm. us with this information about where they are in their lives as they write these things, what brought them to that point. So yeah. Um, yeah. To rephrase the question, I apologize. Uh, what, how are these literary works being, uh, how are they in dialogue with their own context? Mm-hmm. So Maghribi literature from this period, you know, even beyond the works that I'm analyzing in this in this text, um, is concerned with a wide range of issues, right? Decolonization, cultural autonomy, uh, linguistic and ethnic pluralism, gender and sexuality, the list goes on. And while I focus on the influence of Islamic kind of textual and intellectual traditions, on the Maghrebi novel, I think the broader undercurrent of my argument is that it's impossible to isolate this from other spheres of social and cultural life, right? And so the question of gender, for example, just just to take that, um, emerges really explicitly in Javar's feminist historiography, right? Because it's outlined as part of her project. But it's also in the works of Abdul Wahab Madhab, Tahir Watar, and Dri Shrevi 
in terms of how they expose patriarchal structures used to legitimize social, economic, religious, and political expressions of power, right? And for them, it's really important to highlight how these are all kind of imbricated. Um, and this, in some ways, speaks, I think, to the influence of scholars in the anthropology of Islam, like Talal Asad and Sabah Mahmoud, on my work, where uh, they sort of caution us to assume that, you know, religion was always this privatized sphere of life, and instead to understand it uh, within a kind of deeper historical context. And so... I would also add, just in terms of the question of context, as I as I mentioned earlier, since a lot of the writers that I'm focusing on also wrote literary and cultural criticism, it meant that I had this archive of writings mm -hmm. to turn to, to kind of better understand their broader intellectual and political investments. So, you know, there's a five-volume collection of Mahmoud al-Masadi's writing, or four-volume, I believe, in which he talks about the influence of, he has interviews, he has articles, he talks about the influence of the Quran on his intellectual formation, on his theories of literary production. And so th this is really kind of a useful and fortunate archive to have at my disposal. Um, and at this period in the mid 20th century, I'd say that most Maghrebi intellectuals were really concerned with what has come to be called the language question in Maghrebi studies specifically the issue of whether to write in French or Arabic. And while for some this was a choice, for a lot of authors who came of age in French occupation period, they didn't really have a strong enough grasp of Arabic to write in Arabic. And so famously, the Algerian novelist Malik Haddad vowed after French independence that he would never write another book in French, and that meant he simply stopped writing. Or say someone also from Algeria, Kateb Yassin, similarly struggled in this fashion, but instead turned his attention to writing and staging plays in Algerian vernacular that were performed largely for working class audience. And so this speaks to like a, another issue at play, which is the diglossic nature of Arabic. So between the presence of what I would call Arabics, modern standard Arabic, Quranic Arabic, vernacular Arabic, Berberophone languages, French, and even Hebrew, Spanish, Italian, and English, the Maghreb is a really multilingual context, right? To write in any language is to never write monolingually. It's always kind of accented with these other um, with these other languages. And so for someone like Jabbar, for example, she took a nearly 10-year publishing hiatus um, after independence where she studied Arabic, taught film literature and history at the University of Algiers, and even worked on her first feature film in the hopes that afterwards she would be able to write in Arabic. And she wasn't able to, and instead she wrote her you know, magnum opus, L'Amour la Fantasia, or translated into English as Fantasia, an Algerian cavalcade, um, which while written in French, was a deeply polysemic and translingual novel that problematized mm -hmm. a lot of questions of Algerian ethnolinguistic identity and diversity. Um, and so this question of kind of indigenous rights, I think, is a, is a really interesting one. And it's worth noting that, you know, it's a topic that comes up largely in Francophone literature, more so than Arabic literature from the Maghreb. And I would argue that might be in part because of the divisive uh, French colonial policies at the time 
that differentially racialized and governed, say, indigenous Berberophone populations from Arab Jews and Arab Muslims. And so, you know, in a lot of early colonial literature, uh, Berberophone Maghribis were treated as civilizationally and racially closer to Arabs, uh, sorry, to Europeans than to Arabs. And this rhetoric really dramatically influenced how questions of kind of religion, ethnic identity, and language came to shape cultural practices. And we, in some ways, see this play out, I think, in terms of uh, how the Maghreb sits so uncomfortably within the logics of how we structure area studies in the U.S. and Europe, right? It's not quite Arab enough for Middle East studies or Near Eastern languages and cultures, but also too Arab for African studies or French and Francophone studies. But I do think that this discomfort can be really intellectually productive because it sort of reflects back to us the conceptual limitations of these demarcations across discipline and geography. And that's why, you know, both in the book and in my other writings, I've started to adopt the term Arabophone as a kind of counterpart to Francophone because I think it speaks mm-hmm. to these problematics and, and sort of decenters Arabic as the lingua franca for cultural production in the, regi- in the region mm-hmm. um, in ways that I hope complicate um, some of the sort of identity politics that these debates can be mired in. Um. No, it's a lot to digest. Uh, that's a wonderfully layered answer about sort of the semantics of of language, um, and 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 yeah, that's that that's. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit. It's just so much you've just given to me. Um, so something else I thought a lot about a lot as I read the book itself, but also as you've spoken yourself, is the role of literary criticism in the novel. Um, and then also genre, because mm-hmm. um, as you mentioned before, many of the individuals that you're treating um, were polymathic in the sense that they had different ventures and these ventures all feed into each other. Um, but also another consideration is the novel as a form of cultural production. The novel is often said to be quite young in Arabic, but that has been disputed. <laughs> um, and I just I want to ask you not specifically about the novel, but about genre. Um, mm-hmm and how genre functions in your work um, with regards to the Quran, with regards to the individual writers that you're treating, um, with regards to sort of how you orient your work yourself, even, because I think just to give credit to the book itself, it really functions as both a literary work, but also work of literary criticism, but also as a work of Quranic studies and Islamic studies in its own right. Um, So again, to just generally approach the question of genre, and how it functions within the context of your work. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. Um, I mean, and I think this circles back to a point you raised earlier, which is why the framework of adab is so interesting for thinking about questions of narrative, right? Because before the term was secularized and kind of codified as simply meaning literature in, in the late 19th century. And I think here the work of Michael Allen and specifically his study in the shadow of world literature was immensely helpful and influential. Um, and that really encompassed a broad range of genres and textual practices. It kind of carried this, this valence of moral and intellectual refinement. 
So it basically brings ethics embodiment into conversation with theorizations of literary genre and critical reading. And for me, the novel was kind of an interesting site to approach these questions because uh, it's often heralded as a genre. The, no the novel is often heralded as this kind of peak of literary or pinnacle of literary modernity. And it's also seen as this, you know, byproduct of secular European cultural imperialism, right? And I think that that speaks to your earlier comments in the, uh, in the framing of the question about how, you know, people talk about it as not being this sort of autochthonous genre to Arabic literature. And instead, it often gets treated as this sort of adapted literary genre that arrived belatedly, that then gets imbued with this local content. Again, I think speaking similar to the points I was making about theory from below, right? Why is the West always the site of, of the universal and the global South always the site of the particular, right? And so for me, putting the 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 novel into conversation with the Quran, which I think also operates at this kind of scale of narrative totality and world building, was just a way to sort of unsettle some of these assumptions, right? Because um, I am coming at this project, not from the perspective of, even though, you know, I, I read as, as capaciously as I could on the subject from Quranic studies, I'm really coming at it from the perspective of someone who was trained in comparative literature and secondarily in philosophy. And so, you know, and you see in, in comparative literature and literary um, criticism that scholars ranging from Lukács to Roland Barthes have really tethered the genre of the novel and also how we unpack its literary criticism to what they call, and I think Bart refers to it as a kind of anti-theological ontology, right? Um, and so, you know, thinking about how the Quran itself models some of these privileged literary qualities that often get ascribed to kind of postmodern or modernist aesthetics, its nonlinear arrangement, its code switching, its multivocality, its asynchronicity. This gives us another sort of point of entry to kind of expand and problematize the limitations of, um, we could say, literary typologies that kind of treat these Euro-American Euro genres as universal forms. Um, and then I think the last thing for me that was interesting in thinking about the novel in relation to Adab, in relation to the Quran, is the idea of the individual. And so within Euro-American literary criticism, the novel is, is often sort of attached to a particular model of individualism, where the individual is at the same time valorized and universalized in relation to social life. And so you look at something like the Bildungsroman, which is this sort of developmentalist coming of age style genre. But when you put the novel into context with, say, Adab and the Quran, it brings to the table a broader and I think really more generative kind of understanding of edification as a collective social and ethical praxis, right? So Adab encompasses the people who read, the people who write, the community of production. It's, it's so much broader than just a kind of corpus or genre of text. 
And this really just struck me as something that was missing from a lot of the critical literature on genre studies and, and on the novel in particular. Mm. Mm, that's intriguing. I think it's also interesting to me because I think in intellectual history of the Arabophone world, you don't necessarily get that attention to audience that understands mm. thought as a dynamic process that requires an audience in order to sort of to be translated into different uh, mediums, um, especially when you have different genres emerging as a result of new technologies. I mean, even as sort of basic as, you know, the development of TikTok, but to kind of go mm -hmm. <laughs> in another direction with genre, something that really, that I really admire about the book is the cover. <laughs> um, and I admire it because I think it would have been so easy to, you know, and this, this would have been a completely valid choice. This has been done by other writers to go with, you know, the cover of the book in Arabic, perhaps of one of the yeah. texts, because they have such beautiful, I mean, the abstract movement really influenced the design of book covers in the seventies and eighties. It would have been easy to find something, right? But you mm -hmm. went with this gorgeous, um, saw blade and steel designed by the artist Munir Fatmi, who I believe lives in France, even though he has a background from the Maghrib, um, uh, from Morocco itself. And there's a Quranic verse cut into the saw steel blade. And it's the, it's Surat al-Ikhlas. Um, and it's, it's this stunning piece of just, it just says something about intertextuality. It, it announces that the book sort of has this intertextual, um, intermedial, approach to the Quran before you even, I mean, the book does, the cover does sort of tell you the story. Um, so I was wondering what drove the choice of the cover. I'm so glad that you asked about the cover. Munir Fatmi happens to be one of my favorite contemporary artists from the Maghrib, and I was really thrilled that he gave us permission to use this 2010 installation piece, uh, which I believe the photograph is from uh, an exhibit in Canada, but the piece is titled Between the Lines. Um, and as you rightly note, it's a steel circular saw that's kind of been perforated with the, with the text of the Quranic Surah Al-Ikhlas, which the Surah itself um, affirms the transcendence of God and evokes the testimony of the believer as a kind of speech act, right? say he is the one God, right? That's that's how the surah opens. And so in the accompanying text to the installation, Fatmi writes that the piece, quote, questions the, mys the mystical or religious notions of the unity and uniqueness of God. The work studies the meaning of these tawhids or dogmas, observes the way they function and evokes their effects. Um, I figured it would be best to use the the artist's own words in this context. And so while the surah is a kind of declaration of faith, what Fatmi is telling us just in the sheer titling of the piece is that we have to look beyond the text, right? We have to, quote, read between the lines. And so he's repurposing this Quranic surah in which a speech act that affirms and circumscribes faith now becomes an invitation to us as viewers of this piece to kind of engage our own critical faculties, right? To see more than just what's in front of us as a textual or a physical artifact. 
And since my own reading of Islam, as I outlined throughout the book, is as a kind of critical practice that motivate that uh, cultivates these ethical modes of subjectivity in the pursuit of knowledge, it felt like this piece especially resonated with the project. And I could have used dozens of other pieces from Munir Fatmi's archive. These are uh, constant sort of preoccupations of his artistic practice. And then I would also just add that I really appreciated how it kind of physically um, embodied Quranic textuality in something that is a tool, right? It's a circular saw, but also it's this bizarre kind of reified work of gallery art um, and one that feels oddly um, at odds with its location. Mm-hmm in some sense. And then, you know, it has these kind of sharp edges on the outside, suggesting something almost violent. And to me, that sort of read like a kind of subtle warning, perhaps cautioning us against the dangers of textualist readings that don't look between the lines. And then the the last thing I'll say, because I can really talk about this piece for hours, <laughs> is that it's it's circular, right? And there's something about the circularity of it Right. Because when you're reading it, you could just keep going and going in circles. And there was something about that that I really liked because it it's sort of spoke to this question of iterability and recitation that is so central to Quranic modes of reading. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. There's absolutely so much you could say about this piece. And I highly encourage people to look it up because it the circularity of it, but also the script he uses, I think, to me, sort of harkens back to. Um, I mean, this could be under the dome of any, painted under the dome of any any mosque in many different parts of the world. Um, and to me, there's something here about another link in the representation of the text. I mean, there's just, again, so much that does tie also into your work that I just, I find it very powerful. And I'm, yeah. And I highly encourage everyone to go look up the rest of the body of his work. He does interesting things with carpets as well and, and mm-hmm. materials that are... Um, you know, consumer goods reinterpreted. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to congratulate you on the book itself and um, wish you the best of luck with promoting it and ask you what you're currently working on. What projects? Uh, can you give us teasers for the next book, perhaps? Sure. Um, so right now I'm working on a couple of things, but my second book project focuses really on Arabic, Francophone, and bilingual cultural journals from the Maghreb, roughly ranging from the 1930s to the 1980s. Um, I kind of wanted to do something a little bit different from the intense close reading that this first book partook in. So this is a project that really allows me to do sort of close and distant reading, um, but also to look at kind of print and material culture in interesting ways. And it does tie into the first book project insofar as I'm kind of putting this question of edab into conversation with print culture and periodical studies. So I'm approaching the serialization of journals, right, where information is distributed across issues and genres of writing and authors and time. Um, I'm thinking about that as reflecting a kind of view of cultural edification where knowledge formation and knowledge practices are shared and mediated, right? So in this sense, I think there's a way in which we can think of the journal as a kind of collective educational praxis that that really speaks directly, I think, to this concept of edab in a lot of ways. 
Um, also, you know, in terms of the question of periodization and the post-colonial, uh, the networks of these journals really spanned North and Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and Europe. And so I'm intrigued by the way that they expose these kind of intellectual exchanges that take place outside of the normal sort of North-South cultural mediation of imperialism. And there's a lot of great work being done in kind of Global South studies on how journals and periodicals helped foster these sort of internationalist solidarities and South-South conversations. Um, Beyond that, I would say as my enthusiasm about Munir Fatme probably made clear, I'm also really interested in contemporary art from the region. And so one of the things I'd like to write about is some of the compelling work that's being done uh, around Islam, ethics, and art within contemporary art from the Middle East and North Africa. So I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Sex Afridi's kind of tongue-in-cheek art installations and objects, but they include things like mm-hmm. a flying prayer rug or a space mosque. Um, and then this leads to, I'd say, the sort of third project um, in the works now or on the horizon, which includes a study of speculative and science fiction from the region. Um, I think at the moment in particular, where we're surrounded by global collapse in kind of every direction and every possible manner, I think that speculative fiction can be a really generative tool for learning how to imagine other futures, but also how to think of new ways of being. Um, And so it's something that sort of speaks to me deeply at this particular moment. Okay, thank you so much for that and best of luck with the rest of the year. Thank you so much and thank you for this interview. Awesome.